Well, I am the oldest of five kids, and my family's a bit unusual. There is quite the age span between us. So um, there's a 27-year gap from me to the youngest. And so as such, I guess you can say I didn't have the typical sibling rivalry, rivalry thing with my youngest three siblings because it was different. It was a totally different dynamic. I changed their diapers and fed them bottles. But, but with my oldest brother, we had a different experience. We are the oldest, we're pretty close in age, and we've always been kind of neck and neck. And so the thing that we had that I didn't have with the younger three is that we fought. We had that typical sibling rivalry, and I guess you can say that growing up we had this consistent power struggle between us. And the most commonly used phrase that we threw back and forth at each other, and if you are moms, you might hear this in your house a lot, is you're not the boss of me. No, you're not the boss of me. And now, as a parent, I just think my dad's response is awesome because wherever he was, if he was in the other room and he would hear us fight, he would always yell out to us, that's right, I'm the boss of you. Oh, and it made me so mad because I didn't want anyone to be the boss of me. Thank you very much. I was my own authority. And, and as silly and as childish as that argument really is, is that not the reigning mantra of the society that we live in when it comes to authority? Isn't that how our culture sees authority? You're not the boss of me. I'm my own boss. Thank you very much. I am my own authority. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about authority, and it's really important for us to think about authority rightly, to respond to authority rightly, and that's exactly what our passage is going to help us do today. So if you haven't turned there yet, we are going to be spending our time in 3 John, verses 9 and 10. I'd love for us to read it together. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and he stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Right away, we meet the main character of our lesson today, Diotrephes. And he gets quite the intro, doesn't he? Look at these words that John uses. He likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority. Before John even gets into the things that he is doing that needs corrected, he lets us know a little something about this man. He introduces us to his character. And I love the words that John uses to do it. Look with me at that word acknowledge in verse 9. See the word acknowledge? Put your finger on it. Now, if you will, look down in verse 10. See that word welcome? He refuses to welcome the brothers. Put your finger on that one. You are pointing at the same word in Greek, which is fascinating. We have learned a lot about hospitality through this study, haven't we? And they were commanded to welcome their brothers. That word welcome is important. Just like Bethany taught on last week, they were to open their doors, open-armed, invite them in, make them comfortable, no expense spared. This is pulling them in with a hug and giving them some lemonade and asking them to stay a while. That's the picture that John is using with this word welcome. And it's this word welcome that he's using to describe what Diotrephes is not doing, that he should have been doing with his authority. 
He should have been welcoming his authority. This open-armed, invite them in, want to hear what they have to say, make them comfortable, treat them like an honored guest. That's what he should have been doing with his authority, but he refused. So right off the bat, I want to word our first point this way. We need to eagerly welcome our leader's authority. Eagerly welcome your leader's authority. It's really important that we understand the truth about authority. And I think often there's this misconception that authority was something that had to be introduced as a fix to a problem. There was a societal need and we needed to have authority to fix the problem. But that's not the case. Authority actually has always existed. It's always been because God is the ultimate authority. And we see authority even in the very beginning of our Bible, back in the garden. In his authority, God set the ground rules for Adam and Eve. He gave them the rules that he wanted them to obey because he was the authority. In his authority, God delegated Adam to be over his wife Eve as an authority. He delegated that. And we see that in rebellion to God's authority, sin was introduced and the results were disastrous, were they not? It is rejection of God's authority that brought sin into the picture. It's really important that we submit to authority, that we welcome it, we invite it, because we know, just as it was in the beginning, authority is for our good. It belongs to God, and he delegates it to others over us, and it's for our benefit. And sometimes, we might need to be aware that we don't submit to authority the way we should. We might think, I submit to my authority, I'm doing pretty well at this, but maybe we need to really check ourselves and make sure that the attitude towards authority is right. Do we welcome authority, or are we just kind of gritting our teeth and bearing it? This might sound like a silly parallel, but um, if you have been to my house, you have met my dog, Tank. He is a 12-year-old, 100-pound chocolate lab, and the, he is something else. And uh, we have this love-hate thing about going outside, because I truly hate taking him for a walk, because he's a pill. Every time I hook his leash to his collar, he loses his mind, and he's done the same thing his entire life. He turns around, he grabs the leash with his mouth, and then he yanks me out the door. And he's a, he's a big dog. He's just, he's annoying to have to walk. The whole point of the leash is that I am in control of him. That's why I hook him up, because I have to have control of my giant dog when I'm outside. But yet in his mind, he feels that clip, and he thinks, all right, good, I will walk you. And that is not, that is not the picture. As I'm standing behind him holding the leash, walking my big dog, just kind of walk around holding the leash, he looks ridiculous. And this is the picture for us of refusal to be led. This is not what we are to look like when it comes to submitting to our authorities. We need to leave the leash alone and be led. Now, far from this, refusing to be led or just kind of half-heartedly submitting, Diotrephes was in a whole different camp. He was refusing. He was absolutely rejecting, refusing, completely disobeying his authority. He flat out refused. We don't know what position Diotrephes held in the church. Some commentators say that he was the local pastor. 
Others say that he was a wealthy man and he had a large home so that he hosted the church. They met in his house. Either way, he had some form of authority in the early church, in that local church. We don't know what it was, but we do know this with absolute certainty. There is no situation in which his authority would ever outrank the authority of John and the apostles that was given to them directly by the Lord Jesus. There's just no situation where he would have the right to refuse their authority. And yet that's exactly what he did. He refused to receive the leadership over them. He rejected it. He pushed against it. And why? John tells us right away in verse 9. He shows us his motive. He liked to put himself first. Man, he loved to be first. He was fighting to maintain control. He was clinging to it. He held on because he liked being first. And that phrase that John uses is so interesting. It's a compound Greek word, and it's only used here in the entire Bible, which I just think is cool. It's a compound Greek word, so it's made up of two words, philos, which is love, and the other half is protuo, which is first place or preeminence. So literally, Diotrephes loved preeminence. He loved first place. And what's even more fascinating about this compound word that's only used once is that the second half of that compound word, that word protuo, is also only ever used once in the whole Bible. And I love the clarity that this gives us to exactly what was going on in Diotrephes' heart because it was only used one other time. And do you know where that was? Colossians 1.18. I'd like to read it for us. Speaking of Jesus, Colossians 1.18 says this. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Whew. That in everything he might be preeminent. Wow. Who's the head of the church? Who's first place? Who's preeminent? Only Christ. Only. I love the way one pastor said it. Diotrephes was looking for a position he was clinging to and loving to put himself in a spot that was not his to take. He was seeking to supplant Christ by not acknowledging the authority that Christ had specifically placed over his church. Bummer. I don't know about you, but when I read about negative examples in scripture, my first thought is, oh, I would never do that. No way. What, what a foolish man. <laughs> and yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything that is written in scripture is there for us as an example so that we can stop and check ourselves and really make sure this isn't us. If you've been reading the daily Bible reading with us, we just finished reading about King David and his infamous sin. If you've been following along, you guys know the story. King David saw a woman that he wanted she was married, he committed adultery with her, she got pregnant, he tried to cover it up, it didn't work. So then he sent her husband off to the front of the fiercest battle where he knew he'd be killed, and then he took his wife for himself. A series of bad decisions on King David's part. And God hated his sin, he hated his sin. And he was going to deal with David's sin. But do you remember the way that David was reprimanded, how God did it? It was very unusual. God sent Nathan the prophet to David. 
And Nathan came to David and he said, David, there's a poor man who lives in Israel and he has this one ewe lamb, just one lamb. And this lamb is more like a kid to him. This lamb eats off his table, he sleeps in his bed, it's like one of his children, he loves his lamb. Well, his neighbor is wealthy and he has a whole flock of sheep and when his rich neighbor found out that a dinner guest was coming to his house, he didn't want to kill one of his sheep, he didn't want to suffer the loss, he killed his neighbor's lamb. And I love David's response. He was outraged. You can almost picture him standing up in the middle and just, this is what is going to be done for the man that showed no pity. He was levying the punishment back. And it was in this moment, in this scene, that Nathan looked back at David and said, David, you're the man. This is you. And I love that God did that. He had to take David a little bit outside of his own experience, his own life, And he showed him an example and said, see this sin? See how ugly this is? And as soon as David saw the ugliness of it, he felt the weight of it, he was enraged at it, then God pointed it right at him, said, this is you, David, it's you. And I think we would be really remiss if we didn't look at our passage today in this exact light. We have been introduced to a character, a man named Diotrephes, for a very important reason. We've got to sit back and see if there is anything in the scripture that we study where we might see our own reflection and be open to the Spirit's conviction in our heart when he points right back at us and says, you're the man, this is you. We've got to ask ourselves: do I welcome authority? Do I actually invite it? Do I want it? Do I welcome it? Or do I just say that I do? What is our attitude to welcoming authority? And practically, what does that mean? First of all, if we are in this room, I assume we all want to do what is right before the Lord. So right off the bat, first thing to do, practically speaking, in welcoming the authority in our life is that we welcome Christ's authority. He is the ultimate authority. He is the head of all authority. He is where the buck stops. And when we come to Christ, we literally choose to die to ourselves and live to a new authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is not the case, if we look at our life and we say, I actually kind of am the authority in my life, then we can't say that Christ is because they both can't sit on the throne at the same time. One has to yield. So either we are our own authority or Christ is, and that's really where it starts. But practically, how do we welcome the authority of Christ? If we are believers and we want to do what's right, how do we welcome Christ's authority? Jesus makes it so simple for us, so easy to understand. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Ooh, so simple. We can't say, I submit to Christ's authority and never read our Bibles. It just doesn't work. If we say that we submit to Christ's authority, we welcome his authority in our life, then we should be women who want to know exactly what he says so that we can do it. This is so important. If Christ is the authority in our life, that means that he is the authority over everything. He's the authority over our body, our time, our kids, our boss, our money, I mean everything. He is the authority. And it all has to start here. We've got to submit to the authority of Christ first and foremost, forever. And it doesn't work to say, well, 
I submit to Christ, that's why I don't submit to fill in the blank. That doesn't work because again, if we are listening to what the scripture says and choosing to obey Christ's words, then we know with absolute clarity in the pages of scripture that there are other areas in our life that he has delegated his authority to and we are to be subject to them. And I'd like us to think through those areas again with an open heart to ask the Lord to make it clear to us where we need to do better in welcoming this authority. Romans 13.1 says that we are to submit to our governing authorities. Unless they ask us to sin, unless they are prohibiting the gospel, we are to respectfully comply with our governing authorities. Ephesians 6.5 says that we are to honor our earthly masters. This is our bosses at work. We are to honor them, work hard, and do it for the Lord, not to men. Here's everybody's favorite. Ladies, if you are married, this means that you eagerly welcome the authority of your husband over you. This means you choose to happily rank yourself under him. You gladly do it. You choose it. You defer to him. You trust him. You follow his leadership unless he asks you to sin and contrary to scripture asks you to do something that would violate your conscience. But here's the truth of it. There is a lot, a lot that falls outside of scriptural commands and lands in the preference bucket. There's a lot. So we need to let the leash alone and follow our husband's lead. If you're living at home, then this means you are to submit to your parents. Ephesians 6.1 says that you are to obey your parents in the Lord. This is the right thing to do. And finally, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning, because our passage talks about authority in the church. If you are a believer, you are commanded by God to be a part of your local church. You are to be part of the body. And eagerly welcoming Christ's authority means that you will obey what he says and you will not forsake his body, the church. And as such, as part of the church, you will have leaders there. You will have elders, pastors, and I love how the Lord timed this lesson for us because we just got to see Pastor Kellen be ordained and we got to hear Pastor Mike's words about the weightiness of this role of pastor, elder. These men that lead us have a huge, incredibly heavy burden that they carry. They are going to stand before the Lord as we all will, but here's the difference. There's going to be a reckoning from them. They will give an account not only for their own life, and their families, but for every single one of us sitting in this room. I'm sure that is not something that we are eager to do. We wouldn't want that. And yet that is what they have taken on themselves in obedience to Christ as they lead us. And Pastor Mike referenced this verse, and I wanna read it to us again, because I think it'd be really helpful as we think about welcoming the authority of our leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. <laughs> I love just the visual of that, that line. Do you make your pastors groan? I hope not. We, as Christians, 
need to be characterized by glad submission to authority. This really is contrary to the world. This is absolutely contrary to everything else we see. We are not to vie for first place, to be our own boss, to protect our own authority, to want to be first. We, as Christians, lay ourselves down and humbly submit to the leadership that God has placed over us, and we do it for the sake of Christ because he's asked us to. So how well are we doing? If we really sit back and look at our own life and we ask, okay, how am I doing? Not just gritting my teeth and burying it, not just grabbing the leash and kind of going along, but how am I actually welcoming the authority that Christ has ordained over me? How am I doing? I'll give you a really practical way to test yourself. Jesus said this in Luke 6:45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For, here it is, out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Our words will tell us what we feel about authority, how well we're welcoming it. Look with me at verse 10 again. How did Diotrephes use his words? John says this, he said, So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. He described Diotrephes' words as being a force that was used against them, pushed against them. And I think it would be really wise for us to consider the opposite. Rather than using our words as a force of resistance against our leaders, we should use our words to come alongside them and support them, bolster them, encourage them. Let's write it this way for our second point. Support your leaders with your words. Excuse me. A couple years ago, I saw I had a missed uh, phone call from my grandma on my phone. And my grandma leaves me notoriously short voicemails, usually along the lines of, hey, it's grandma, love you, call me. Like, that's usually how it goes. So I saw a voicemail for several minutes long on my phone, and it kind of concerned me. So I, I listened to it right away, and it was shocking because I didn't hear my grandma's voice. I got several minutes of Donald Trump and it kind of took me off guard a minute. And, you know, I, I never had a voicemail from the president before. It was very exciting. But my grandma had called me and didn't know it, and she left me his speech. She was watching the news, and so it just recorded his voice. And as silly as it sounds, that actually happens pretty frequently in my family. And to this day, we're not really sure how, because it seems hard to dial someone on an accident with an iPhone, yet probably once a month, one of my parents will call me and we'll get to hear their dinner conversation. <laughs> now, I, I want you to think about this scenario. Picture with me, you put your phone in your back pocket and you sit down to eat your breakfast in the beginning of the day and then off you go to work or about your normal day's activities and you're talking to your husband, you go to work, you talk to your boss, you go to lunch with your friends and you talk to them about your husband and your boss and you even talk to them about your leaders at church you talk to them about everything. Then you come home and you do your daily tasks and as you're getting ready for bed that night, you pull your phone out of your back pocket and to your horror, you realize that you have made a phone call and you have left a 12-hour message of every single word you've said that day for Pastor Mike. How would you feel? Would you dread him knowing what you said? Well, John heard exactly what Diotrephes said about him. And it wasn't good. John said it this way. 
It was wicked nonsense he was speaking against them. Diotrephes was using his mouth against his leaders. He used his words to tear them down. He used them for gossip, for slander. He was bad-mouthing his leaders. And we've got to beware of this same sin in our own life. We cannot say that we welcome the authority over us and then bad-mouth them with our words. It doesn't work. We have to use our words to support our leaders and not tear them down. And if there's ever a topic that is relevant to women, I'm sure it's this one. I'm sure you, like me, can use a good reminder on how to use your words well. And there's a passage that I would really like us to turn to that I think will help frame our thinking on this. So if you will turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12. I want to read a few verses in Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12:15 says this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Right in his own eyes. We have a lot of opinions, don't we? I'm sure in this room alone, there are so many different categories that we can have opinions on and we can all be passionate about our opinions. But it is wise to not be right in our own eyes. We should use our words not to promote our own opinions or our own right thinking and really be humble. We don't want our words to be used to be defensive or corrective. We don't always have to be right and we don't have to be the authority on everything. It is important to remember that it is the wise woman who listens to advice, that she's a teachable person She's not eager to give her own opinion. We need to be careful of that when we use our words. Look at the next verse, verse 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Ooh. It can be easy for us to say, well, I don't gossip, that's just not me. And yet, the second we feel vexation, that word that we don't often use, but it means irritation, frustration, anger, you hurt me, the list goes on. The second we feel something that we don't like, do we grab our phone? There it is. There's that quickness to share that vexation. We've got to beware of speaking out in our emotions, whatever they are. And even if someone should insult us, if we feel hurt and insulted and wounded, look what the verse says. What does the prudent do? Ignores it. It is never wise to use our words in a harsh way when we are feeling emotional. It's just never okay. We need to make sure that our words are not led by our emotions, that we are not quick to speak out our vexation. And this is easy to do, and one really practical way to be aware of this is that when we sometimes feel like we need to ask for prayer, when we do feel insulted or hurt, what do we do? Ladies, let's make sure even our prayer requests are not an opportunity for us to throw some shade on our leaders. And we all know that line we cross when we really just want to be vindicated for how we are feeling. We need to make sure that our emotions do not rule our words. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 17. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. This one's pretty straightforward. We've got to love what is true. Our words need to be true. 
We've got to be willing to seek out honest evidence. If our leaders do something we don't agree with or frustrates us, we need to make sure we are seeking the honest evidence, that we are willing to go to them and get all the facts, get the full story, not just make an assumption and harbor that bitterness. We need to be people who care about the truth, that care about honest evidence, and that our words are honest and true as well. This is so important. My husband and I have um, an ongoing battle about whose sunglasses are better. And he is the wise one that will pick the sunglasses that have the UV protection that are good for your eyes. Then you know, everything looks blue. And I don't really care if my eyes survive the sun. I want to have cute sunglasses that are, you know, the warmer colors. So every once in a while, we'll be someplace and he'll hand me his glasses and he'll be like, hey, look at that. Look, use my glasses. Look over there. And the other day, we were over at Victoria Beach. And if you guys are um, beach fans like I am, you know that Victoria has these beautiful rocks that are covered in moss and they're really bright green. Well, when I put my husband's glasses on, that green just popped. It was beautiful. It wasn't necessarily the color it was in real life, but through his lens, it was bright. Every time you use your words about your leaders, picture yourself handing them a pair of glasses. <laughs> it's so convicting because you're asking them to look through your lens at their leaders. You're asking them to see it your way. Let's make sure that our words are honest and true that we're not giving them a lens in which things seem exaggerated, things pop a little bit. Make sure we're not leaving things out or manipulating the truth. We need to make sure that our words are honest. There's just no way around it. Let's look at one more verse in Proverbs, the last one. Proverbs 12:18 says this. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Quite simply, let's be slow to speak, ladies. Let's not speak hastily, rashly, quickly, because we know that our words can hurt, like sword thrusts. What a picture. Our words can either bring hurt or healing. So quite simply, let's make sure that our words do not hurt our leaders. We should be talking well about our leaders, and also we should be talking well to them. Let's use our words to spur them on, to encourage them, to bolster them in this weighty task that they've been given. We need to make sure that as believers, our words speak well of those in authority over us. And this is across the board, isn't it? This means our words speak well of our husbands when we are spending time with our girlfriends. This means that our words are not thrown all over social media to paint a poor picture of those over us in the government. This means that our words encourage our spiritual leaders who have been placed over us directly. We need to use our words well. And it is hard work to do this. It's not easy, it's hard. So let's not undo the hard work of using our words well by completely denying them by our actions. What's the definition of a hypocrite? You say one thing and you do another, right? That's what we don't want to be. We can't say, oh, I respect my leaders, and yet completely ignore them and act contrary to them. This is certainly the pattern that Diotrephes showed us. Let's write it this way for our last point. Support your leaders through your actions. 
Look at verse 10 with me again. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Whatever his role was, Diotrephes, his actions condemned him. They condemned him. He refused to show hospitality. And we know this is a big deal, but I want you to think about it from the viewpoint of our brothers and sisters in this first century. They were surrounded by a pagan culture who opposed them for their faith in Christ. In a very real sense, they needed their brothers and sisters in the church to survive. They needed them to be encouraged in their faith so that they would continue being strong. They needed the practical things like a bed and a roof over their head. They needed their brothers and sisters, the church. And to be cut off from it would be unthinkable. It would be devastating and cruel. And yet this is exactly what Diotrephes was doing. It was heartless, it was unthinkable, and he didn't care because he was hostile to the authority that was placed over him. He didn't care if his actions hurt the church because he wanted to be first. He refused to welcome the brothers and he maintained his authority with a threat. It's me or them. He's basically drawing a line in the sand. You obey the apostles or you obey me. But if you don't obey me, you're out of the church. Ooh, and that word, to put them out of the church, it literally means throws them. It is just a visual word of the hostile and aggressive approach that Diotrephes was taking with those under his authority. He threw them out of the church. He cut them off from their spiritual and their physical needs that they needed to have met. And why? Well, the verb tense here shows that it was continual. It was ongoing. It was his pattern. He did this all the time because he wanted to maintain control. Look at the end of verse 10. Look closely. Not only did he prevent those welcoming the brothers, but he stopped those who, what? Wanted to. Do you see the hostility? Let's take a minute and really think about this. Think about what he was doing. If you had to sum it up, Diotrephes was a force of continual resistance to the authority that Christ set up for his church. Continual resistance. His prideful resistance to authority stands as a huge warning for us. May we never stand as a force of resistance against the leaders that Christ has placed over us. May it never be. Ladies, we have to welcome authority. And we've got to actually mean it with our words and with our actions. We can't get that wrong. For Diotrephes, it was his words and his actions consistently that pushed against authority. But are there ways that we're doing this in our life and we just don't see it? Are we blind to this maybe? How are we using our words? Maybe we say that we do honor authority, but we need to be really careful that we aren't using flattery, that we're not using flowery language or just saying what we think our leaders want to hear be the reason we think we can do whatever we want and not obey what they actually say. Think of it this way, and maybe you've been in this exact situation, but you have a bunch of people coming over for dinner in an hour, and your house is a mess. Namely, your kid's room is a mess. 
And as you're finishing up dinner and you're trying to wipe the counters down before your company comes, you tell your kids, hey, go clean your room. Go do it now. And as you're focusing on your tasks, you're not paying attention at first, but then you realize that your kids are in the kitchen with you and they're telling you, I love you, mom. You're so pretty. And at first you're like, thanks, baby. And then you catch yourself, wait a minute. You're not cleaning your room. I told you to clean your room. Doesn't matter if you say nice things to me or tell me that I'm pretty. I want you to do what I said. <laughs> How many times do we do this with our leaders? We think that if we throw them a compliment on the patio or whatever it is, we say something nice about them, then we're actually off the hook. We don't have to do what they ask us to do. We can't let that be the case. Again, we've got to drop the leash. We are not in charge of getting our leaders to do what we want them to do. It is not our job to inform them of all the issues that we think need to be addressed. It is not our job to have an opinion on every issue. Let's not make our leaders groan. Let's actually be women who welcome authority over us, and let's remember why we do it in the first place. Why are we subordinate to our leaders? Because we do it for Christ's sake. Again, Christ is the one who holds all authority. And when we choose to follow Christ genuinely as a real Christian, we know that we are choosing to die to ourselves and to live for him and do what he asks. And his authority over us is crystal clear in the pages of scripture. So it is for Christ's sake that we lay ourselves down and we obey authority of others because we love him and we want him to be pleased. So what happens if we don't? What if you're just thinking, this just sounds kind of like a lot and I'm not really sure it's that important. It seems a little aggressive. Well, let me just put it this way. Just totally honestly, we have two paths to choose. We can choose Christ's way or we can choose the world's. We can. But it needs to be a warning to us that left to our own devices, left to us deciding what is right in our own eyes and us putting ourselves first and not Christ, then the end result will be as disastrous as it was in the very beginning when authority was rejected. And I, I'd like to read you some excerpts from an article that I read this week, actually, written about how we should see authority. Here's a very secular, worldly viewpoint of authority that might just be helpful for us as we think about what will happen if we really just let go and choose to be our own authority. The article said this. Every personal issue that humans have can be summed up with the question, how are you giving your power away? Parents, teachers, coaches, bosses, pastors, the list goes on. Wait, what? No, you're not the boss of me. I am. I am the creator of my life. I am sovereign. I am not a victim. I say, I choose, I create. I am that I am. Think about it. Feel into it. Ask yourself, who's in charge of your life? Really, who? The answer is you. It is absolutely in your best interest to claim your creatorship. Do you really want others making decisions for you? There's no need to fight it. It simply comes to you. So I ask you, how are you giving your power away? And doesn't this, what I describe, 
sound like way more fun? Hmm. This article was written by a personal awakening coach who said in her bio that some of her, um, her passions are personal sovereignty and self-love. And as a follower of Jesus, this article grieved me. It angered me because all I could think when I was reading it is how similar this sounded to the very first time God's authority was rejected in a line of reasoning remarkably similar to this article. Eve asked herself, do I really want God to be the boss of me? Doesn't what the serpent said sound like way more fun? And what happened? Disaster, sin. It's not going to be easy to do things God's way. It's not. It's not going to be something you just feel your way into and really enjoy. It's going to hurt sometimes. It's going to be hard. And yet, the Lord has, in his kindness, introduced us to someone that we would be wise to consider. Here's a man named Diotrephes who loved to put himself first. How do we respond? Are we like him? Are we following in his footsteps in any way? Is there anywhere we need to see our reflection in his example and listen to the Spirit say, this is you, you're the man. I pray that collectively, as women who love the Lord and want to do what's right, we will make the choice to lay ourselves down, to welcome the authority that is over us, practically, actually, in our words, and our actions, and do it for the sake of Christ, the one we love. Maybe we women who welcome authority the way that God has asked us to. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for being the ultimate authority. There is no one like you. There is no one as great. There is no one as perfect. There is no one as holy. And only you have the right to decide who we should obey and yield to, Lord. And if you say that you would like us to obey the authority of those over us, Lord, I pray that that's exactly what we will do out of a heart that reverences your position as first in our life. Lord, I pray that um, just collectively, Lord, as women, you will help us do it, that you and your kindness and through your spirit will really lay us out in the areas where we are fighting this because we like the control. We like to be first. Lord, forbid us from loving our sin more than you. Help us, God. May it not be the case. God, I pray that you would just guide us forward, move us on, help us follow well. Help us to be the examples for our kids. Help us to be an encouragement to our husbands and to our leaders, Lord, and let us do it for your sake because we love you first, preeminently, forever, Lord. I pray that you would get the honor from every single person in this room, the honor that you deserve, the honor that's yours, and that you would be glorified in the way that we choose to die to ourselves and live for you, the King of all kings, Lord. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen.